Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Ann and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. 1000 North Roxbury Drive, a white modern colonial, black shutters, set on prime Beverly Hills real estate between Mr. and Mrs. Jack Benny, Mr. and Mrs. Jimmy Stewart, and across the street from Ira Gershwin, Rosemary Clooney, and Jose Ferrer. It's the same house I've seen in magazines and on the episode of I Love Lucy when the show goes on location to film Lucy and Ethel sneaking across Richard Widmark's front lawn. It's Lucille Ball's house. It's 1977. I've flown to Hollywood to film scenes for Jaws 2, my first movie as an actor. Soon to realize filmmaking would involve swimming in polluted waters outside a cat food cannery in Long Beach. It's my first time here. I don't go to Groman's Chinese Theater, Dodger Stadium, or the Hollywood Bowl. I go to Lucy's house, straight from the airport. I pull up in front of number 1000 in my rented Toyota, fling open the car door. Jane, my girlfriend at the time, freaks out. What do you think you're doing? I'm going to meet Lucy, I say as I jump out. Jane won't get out of the car. She buries her blonde head under the dashboard as I stride up the brick walkway to ring the bell. Lucy is the reason I'm in show business. She taught me comic timing. Her writers taught me how to write. Desi Arnaz showed us all how to produce. And Lucy is the one who still makes me laugh more than anyone else. The Lucy character and I more than connect. Most of the time, I feel like I'm living an I Love Lucy episode, fearlessly jumping into one situation after another, then figuring out how things will work out after the fact. The front door opens, and a little Japanese houseboy pops his head out. Yes? I announce myself. Billy Van Zandt, here to see Lucille Ball? She's not home, he says, slamming the door in my face. I walk back to the car, get in, grab my camera, and start snapping as Jane peels out. So that was the voice of one Mr. Billy Van Zant, playwright, Emmy-nominated TV writer, and now the author of the coolest book of Hollywood stories I've ever read, Get in the Car, Jane, Adventures in TV Wasteland. Welcome, Billy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, that story is incredible, and I'm going to keep the audience in suspense just for a little bit because there is a flip side to that story that I think we're just going to blow your mind. It blew my mind. I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) So this is kind of part two of my shows that look at, in my opinion, the only kind of decades that matter to me in the world of entertainment and music, which are the 60s and 70s. And last week on the show, we spoke with Eddie Munster, Butch Patrick, and got his take on life on the Munsters and his journey And we found out all kinds of things that were just incredible. And now we're going to go deeper into Hollywood with the real legends, in my opinion, at the end of the day. And those are the writers uh, and producers sometimes. That being said, (laughs) I, I like having my audience learn more about my guests first story, so to speak, which is the one they were born with first. So let's circle back to the Jersey Shore as you were the middle child of quite a family, your kid sister, Kathy has had a great career writing and editing at the likes of Vogue, Glamour, and Fortune, just to name a few, and continues to to write well. And then there's your older brother. And full disclosure, in my family, the last few years, uh, making my 93-year-old mom, Queen Bee, as he calls him, a celebrity, 
he kind of walks on water. And that's Steven. Yes, that's Stevie Van Zant to all my E Street and Soprano fans out there. So, Billy, tell me what was it like, first of all, growing up in New Jersey in general? Well, we had a pretty normal childhood. Most people, you hear stories, they went into show business because their life was so horrible. We actually had a fantastic childhood growing up. There was a garage band every other house in our neighborhood, and Stephen was in all of them, probably. And they had an Irish family next door. We had an Italian family over there. We had a Polish family over there. We grew up in a great pool of all different ethnicities, and it was a typical middle-class family. My father... My father was an ex-Marine. Everything was very black and white with him. What we got from him was a work ethic like no other. That's why we're all overachievers, I think. He didn't care what we did as long as we did the best we could at whatever that was. And my mother worked for a doctor's office, and she gave us a nice safety net of love where if you failed, you could always come home and there'd always be somebody there to take care of you. So between those two things, we were pretty good. So did growing up with a half-wasp, half-Italian family teach you at an early age you needed to get into comedy? No. What got me into comedy was I used to watch a lot of TV. I Love Lucy was on 400 times a day back in New Jersey, New York. So I would watch all of them. And I started, I knew I wanted to perform and I knew I wanted to go into comedy, but there was something about that show that clicked with me. It was the timing. It was her timing in particular, but everything about that show appealed to me. And that's the kind of thing I wanted to do. And I learned later that she learned from Buster Keaton. So I sort of learned to love him through her, but I always wanted to perform, but I didn't know anything about show business. We didn't have any show business in our family. Steven was the first and he hadn't made it before I got out of high school. What's your age difference with Steven? Seven and a half years. Okay. And uh, Kathy's three and a half after me. But a little birdie told me that sometimes there was some battles over watching Star Trek versus I Love Lucy. <laughs> that's, that's very true. It's the only fight I ever had with my brother. The only fight I ever had. They were on at the same time, and we used to beat the crap out of each other trying to get to the dial to switch. I'd switch it to Lucy. He'd switch it back to Star Trek. That's the only fight we ever had. <laughs> that's what I think about it. Well, it's funny. My sister's 10 years older. My brother's seven years older. And we really spent very little time at home. So I had full reign. So I could watch as much I Love Lucy, The Odd Couple, The Monsters, The Honeymooners, and Batman, and whatever else I wanted to watch uh, whenever I wanted. You guys also shared a room and had bunk beds, too. We did. I did. I remember the first time. I must have been five years, six years old. First time I heard the Beatles was on a little transistor radio that hung on the end of the bed. I remember Stephen's eyes popping out at that too, but that was that was cool. Yeah, we shared a room for a, a short time. Stephen moved out in high school. There were a lot of uh, my father going, uh, "Why don't you go outside and play? I have to have a have to have a talk with Stephen," because you know, long hair in Middletown, New Jersey, was not liked by the the police. Let's say, yeah. Times certainly have changed in the Jersey Shore. So, well, how did your folks react to you being yet another Van Zant wanting a career in show business? My father thought anyone in show business was a bum. That's what that was his word. He used all the time. He'd point at pictures of people that I liked of bum, bum, bum. If they weren't bums, they were drunks, according to him. So luckily for me, Stephen, seven and a half years older, he went through all the crap. Those were all the talks we had to go outside for, you know. <laughs> 
But right as I got out of high school, Stephen was, I think he was, at that time, he had laid all the groundwork for getting yelled at by my father. So it was easier for me. I said, I want to go into show business. I will say, after I was actually still, I was successful in show business, my father was still trying to talk me into taking a job at the A&P because they had benefits. (laughs) (laughs) That's... All right, so let's get to this incredible book, which essentially tells your amazing rise to fame in Hollywood and off-Broadway with your wonderful partner, Jane Milmore, who I'm so sorry to for you, you know, so sadly that she passed away earlier this year from pancreatic cancer and condolences, first of all, because I know that this must be so bittersweet having this book out about all of these stories that the two of you shared together and that she's not here to be a part of it. We were together 46 years. We met in high school and we spent every day together for 46 years writing together. We started out as boyfriend, girlfriend, and to make a very long story short, we got over that. We married other people, but we never missed one day of work in all that time. Now, you met in a high school drama competition? Yeah, there was a theater in Rumson, New Jersey called The Barn. And they used to have a high school competition from all over the state. Every high school would bring a scene from a different thing. And Jane was from Keensburg High School, and she did uh, a scene from Plaza Suite. I was from Middletown High School, and we did Lovely Ladies, Kind Gentlemen. And the producer of that theater put Jane and me together in a Neil Simon play the following summer. And that's where we met and all that. Well, it's so it's so funny and how things happen. And I had a similar situation, but not at all similar. I was very involved in acting in high school and where I grew up in Springfield, New Jersey. And there was this kid that I would always come in. He was doing shows. I was doing shows. And then we both got into the debate club and we debated against each other. And honestly, I don't even know who won and who lost. But anyway, that kid was Jason Alexander. And I hadn't seen him in many, many years. And I ran into him at the New Jersey Hall of Fame last year and just sort of sharing and kibitzing about those days because he was kind of the kid doing all the acting in Livingston and I was the kid doing it in Springfield. And there was a lot of those things going on, these drama competitions back then. Yeah, they were good. They really, really were a lot of fun. And obviously the two of you, as you said, a writing team for so many years for so many wonderful shows. We'll talk a little bit more, but like New Heart, Martin, Anything But Love, Suddenly Susan, there's a story there for starters. But you initially wanted to act a little bit, I guess, and you landed a part in the very popular first Jaws sequel, Jaws 2, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was my first movie audition, too. I started acting in community theater and got an agent from that. The agent sent me out for you know different things, but the first movie audition I had was Jaws 2. I was in that for, we filmed that for 11 months. If I recall, it doesn't end well for you in that movie. Well, it should have ended badly for me, but what ended up happening, they filmed my death scene, which was great, and I did my own stunt, and they yanked me underwater with ropes, and the big shark came crashing down on top of me, and we disappeared together under the water. It's one of the stupidest things I ever agreed to do. They decided that my death would make the movie an R-rated movie, so they filmed me quickly swimming up on shore, living, and I didn't know till I saw the movie in the theater whether I lived or died. I wish they'd killed me. That footage? Were you able to able to get the footage of them killing you? No, they can't find it. They can't find it. all the the Jaws two fans have been looking for it for years. That movie plays every ten minutes on TV. So yes, it does. <laughs> if you ever see the very last shot of the movie, the the camera pulls back and you see all the kids on the island having survived the shark. I'm not there. <laughs> 
you have the insert of me going, hugging the rock, going, thank you, thank you, thank you. But you don't see me in the final shot, so I must have had to swim all the way around the back of the island is my only, the only thing that makes sense. Uh, and I have to tell you, you did a movie after that, and it broke the career truly for your co-stars, Sean Penn, Tom Cruise, Timothy Hutton. But what I loved about Taps, and it's actually always been one of my favorite movies, is my dad went to Valley Forge Military Academy. I forget, was it filmed there? Yeah. Or yeah. yeah, I thought it was. Yeah. And the story was based a little bit on on a number of things. And I remember going to see Taps with my dad. And Valley Forge was incredibly part of his life. He went there for junior and and high school and failed his physical to get to West Point or if he passed, I might not be here. But he really that was just such an important, important thing to him. And actually, just a few weeks before he died, suddenly I took him to Valley Forge to watch the graduation parade, which was one of his favorite things. So that experience had to be I mean, I just love the movie, and I know you got a lot of stories, and we'll get into Tom Cruise in the car in a minute, but <laughs> what was it like on that set? Do you sense you were working with some, some pretty heavy-duty actors? We were just a bunch of kids, pretty much for most of us, making our first movie. Giancarlo Esposito, everybody knows from Breaking Bad, he, he was in it too. We were all intimidated by George C. Scott. That was like the, he was the big star on the, on the show. Tim Hutton won his Academy Award while we were filming. Tom Cruise was just so new, so, so innocent. Sean Penn, this was his first movie, I believe, but he was very method. He and Tom weren't supposed to like each other in the film, so Sean would go out of his way to antagonize Tom in scenes that Sean wasn't even in. He would stand behind the camera and give him the finger just so we'd get mad at him for later in the day when we had to shoot a different scene. It was half funny to me and half cruel. <laughs> but I stayed friends with those guys for a, a good while. Sean more than Tom, really. Did you write at close range or you were involved in, in the process with that? What happened with that was somebody had sent me the script and they wanted me to give it to my brother to give it to Bruce Springsteen. They wanted to use his music in the film. I don't do that. So I read the script and I said, Sean, you've got to option this movie. This is fantastic. And he read it and he did. He optioned it with the idea that he would play the lead and I would do the small role in it. And then the film came time to shoot it. And I got a phone call that the director said I was too old for the role I was playing. So sorry, you know, you're out of luck. A little while later, Sean and Madonna got married. I'm at that wedding. And this kid comes up to me and says, how do you know uh, Sean? And I tell him, I said, how do you know Sean? He said, oh, I just finished a film with him. And I look at the guy and he looks 10 years older than I do. And I said, what role did you play? And he told me, and it was my role. And Tom Cruise, who's standing next to me, thought it was the funniest thing in the world. So he's laughing at me. <laughs> so at the end of the wedding, Tom said, Billy, will you do me a favor? The paparazzi are driving me crazy. I parked a couple of miles away. Can you get your car and drive me to my car? I said, sure, I'll do that. So I got my car and I pulled up and I signaled for him to come out. And as he approached my car, I took off and left him there. <laughs> I, left, I left him there with all the paparazzi just attacking him, like laughing me, you bastard. He said he jumped in the next car that came up. He didn't care whose it was. And it turned out to be Andy Warhol's car. Oh, my God. And he said no one talked to him the entire time. He said everybody in the car just stared at him like he was a painting. And they drove him to his car, and they didn't even say goodbye or anything. He just got out. But I, <laughs> I love that. I love doing that. Oh, God, what a crazy story. The six degrees of the Kevin Bacon separation game. I'm thinking, okay, well, eventually Sean Penn got Bruce 
to have a song in his movie with Dead Man Walking. And then, of course, Bruce's sister was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High with Sean Penn. So, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's a small world. All right. Everybody out there wants to hear the other half of the Lucy story. Because if I was listening, I'm like, shut up already, Slater. Let this guy (laughs) tell the rest of the story. So tell us about what happened afterwards. Ten years later, ten years after that first incident where I, I walked up and tried to meet her and knock on the door of the house and get the door slammed in my face, ten years later, I'm in her living room. I was an invited guest. We had become friendly during her last TV show, Life with Lucy, and I had done a little tiny roll on it and we got chummy during that time and she invited me to the house so i'm in the house and at the end of the night i thought i'm comfortable with my new friends there and i say lucy did you ever meet charlie chaplin i know he influenced your work you imitated him in a bunch of your shows but i never saw a picture of the two of you together she said no we never met but i'll tell you a story we were in her husband gary gary and i were in switzerland in 1976 and i found out where chaplin lived so we drove over there But Gary wouldn't get out of the car. He stuck his head under the dashboard, and I walked up the walkway, and I knocked on the door, and a big fat housekeeper answered the door, and I said, Lucille Ball's here to see Charlie Chaplin, and they slammed the door in my face. (laughs) And it was the same story. It was so bizarre, and I never told her the part of me doing it to her house because we had just, prior to that, we had been talking about how the house was right on the corner on the street and very vulnerable. Somebody said, what do you do about security? And they said, oh, we just press a button. If any fans get out of hand, we press a button and bars come down over the windows. And I thought, well, if I tell the story, if I tell that story, they're (laughs) going to throw me out of here and put the bars down. So I never told her, but she was great. She was everything I wanted her to be when I met her. Really lovely lady. I had a great, great time with her. Well, folks, when you read the book, there's so much more about the relationship between Billy and Lucy. And I'll save that for the book. There's just some amazing stories and some really incredible generosity on her part to young Billy uh, at the time. You said the book is filled with stories about Don Rickles, Sinatra, Dorothy L'Amour, just to name a few. Maybe not Dorothy L'Amour, but we're talking about comedy, just great comics. And Rickles, to me, is just one of the greatest of all time. His live album in Vegas is still probably, other than music, what I listen to the most. It may not be as appreciated today for a lot of other reasons, but I did have the pleasure of having him insult me once at an event I was with Larry King, and that was just really one of the great honors to be insulted by him. The question I was wanted to ask here is, what do you think is the secret to comedy gold? Because you've been around it. Wow. I think if I could answer that, everybody could become that. You're born with it. You're really born with it. Well, the comedians I've worked with, the ones who have been really legendary, they created their own person, their own persona. That's what the shows, Bob Newhart, his delivery, you can hear it on the records he made in the early 60s. They were really popular. You know, they're as popular as the Beatles, those albums. Most of the great comedians, stand-up comedians that I've worked with, probably had honed their act for about 10 years or more before they became TV stars. So when you're writing for those people, you already hear their voice. You know the character that they can play. And it's my job to showcase that. The hard part, and especially for people like Martin Lawrence, for those people, for the most part, they've been their own writer, they've been their own director, they've been their own producer, and they've been their own star for about 10 years. Then they come to work in TV, and and you're supposed to like tell them what to do, and I know better than you what's going to work here. You have to really earn the trust. 
once you get that, then everything's good. But, you know, sometimes we're difficult. Like Martin was difficult to work with, but the, the end product from him, he's hilarious to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. In that show in particular, he sort of went from an unknown. I mean, he was unknown on Def Jam and those kind of things, but he wasn't known nationally until he did our show. And we watched him go from an unknown to a superstar in half a season. It was very strange. Yeah. The book, again, folks, is called Get in the Car, Jane, Adventures in the TV Wasteland. You can order it right now on Amazon, and probably by the time this podcast ends, it'll be delivered to your doorstep. But speaking of this book, what was your inspiration, really, for writing this at all? It started out as a book for my kids, because they never understood what I did. They knew my plays. They would come to the theater. They'd see the rehearsals. They'd see the whole process. But they really had no idea what went into a television show. And so I started writing this for them. And I was fortunate enough, or I don't know why I did this really, but I kept journals on all the shows. So every every TV show I talk about that we worked on, I had a journal to go back and remember things. So it started out as a book for the kids, and then it ended up just being a memoir of all the TV shows we worked on and all the funny stories about working on those TV shows that I used to tell at dinner parties. <laughs> you know, And along the way... I didn't do this on purpose, but along the way, you sort of learn, not how, but what my job actually was to be a showrunner of a TV show, to create a TV show, to be an executive producer. You learn a little bit in each chapter of, oh, that's what they did there. Oh, I didn't know that. Very little bit of a textbook, but it's mostly just a lot of funny stories. Well, yeah, I mean, you and Jane must have learned so many lessons during your time in Hollywood and especially as a budding writer. If, if there's somebody out there listening that is writing, what kind of advice would you be giving maybe for writers or actors in television today? I think the, the biggest rule, the biggest thing I learned over the course of this whole thing is nobody knows anything. Really. Everybody's like, is there a formula? Is there a, a certain structure to this or that? Nobody in the television business knows anything. So write what you like. If you're going to go down in flames, go down your own plane. The other thing I would say is if you're an actor, I would suggest you stay in New York and learn the craft out here, it's a lot about the deal out here in L.A. as opposed to the actual work. But main thing for me is nobody, nobody knows anything. <laughs> That's the rule. Well, well, listen, television Hollywood is just one part of your illustrious career. And, and those of us in New Jersey that saw your shows at Brookdale, for example, remember a lot of wild nights where you and Jane would basically take over the theater for the summers, excuse me, create this wildly imaginative farce musical comedies that clearly were inspired by your own heroes, like Lucy, like the Marx Brothers. Yeah, we did for, I think it was 30 plus years. Annually, we would go back to Monmouth County and we would write and produce an original show. And from there, we would either take them up to uh, New York, do off-Broadway, or we would simply publish them and they'd get done all over the world, which was fantastic. But we always debuted it was 25 plays, I think, over the course of all that time. 25 plays. It was the most fun we had because you do the TV stuff for eight months a year and you want to blow your brains out sometimes. And then you get to go back home, see all my friends, and we'd all have fun putting on these shows together. We'd use the students from the college as our crew and, and assistant designers and, and gave away a bunch of scholarships, which is nice. It was fun. So... They explained, when I first started in TV, they explained the difference between theater and television to me. Theater, they said, you're the top of the pyramid. Everybody has to please you as the playwright. 
and they said, welcome to television. You're not the top of the pyramid. You're a blueprint, and everybody's going to change whatever they feel like on your script. That was a big adjustment. But knowing I could go back and do the plays, uh, I sort of like, well, now I'm, now I'm in charge again. So you and Jane wrote so many wonderful shows, 25 at least, that have played all over the world. But there's clearly one that really caught fire fairly recently was You've Got Hate Mail. Yeah. Which I understand it, it really gave birth when Jane and her ex-husband at the time had quite the email exchange going on. And fortunately, she saved some of those emails. And I guess it was you who said, this could be a funny show. When they were going through their divorce, it was it was ugly. He would write to her and, and we shared an office. So I would, she would be sobbing at her desk, writing things back to him. And she was getting nastier and nastier. And I would read the things and I would be laughing at them. I was like, Jane, these are horrible. These are cruel. These are, and they're hilarious. I said, hang on to these. We may need them someday. And maybe, I don't know, five years later, something like that. We started to write this. You've got hate mail show. Because we had seen, I had seen Love Letters, which is, everybody knows that show. And there's two people just reading letters back and forth to each other. It killed me how simple it was. I was like, why did I think of that? So we tried to just do something called hate mail with people writing nasty letters back and forth. And it just didn't make sense at all. And then we thought about using laptops and emails. And we did the entire show. It's basically the story of Jane's divorce told through emails. And some of the same exact emails that she sent her husband and he sent her ended up in the script. And the stuff that she was sobbing about when she was writing now got huge laughs. It was fun for me because I, I had no connection to it at all. But well, fortunately, you and your, well, I guess, ex-wife, Adrienne Barbeau, were not writing emails to each other, I guess, because you said you're not a big technology guy. So No, 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 no. <laughs> No, no. And we, we always got along. So that was that was a different thing. But that show, it took off internationally. We won the equivalent of the Tony Award for Best Play in Mexico. I went over to see it. Where'd we go? We saw it in Poland, in Hungary. It's been all over the place. They did it in Dubai. They did it in Mumbai. Crazy. Everybody can uh, identify with the fact that you hit send by accident, and the wrong letter goes to the wrong person. That's how Jane's character finds out her husband's cheating on her, because he sends the letter to his mistress. Is there a filmed version of this anyone can, can see, or no? No, no, but it's usually it, it's, it's done in almost every state. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's constantly playing. And now with these, the Zoom theater, which is where we are now, a lot of people are starting to do that one, too. Yeah, I know Maureen uh, Van Zandt's been doing that lately. There's really fascinating how they're doing that. Is there a huge difference between writing plays and sitcoms? What's the formula that you think works the best and has left us the great sitcoms like the obviously I Love Lucy, The Honeymooners? And again, it's it's I know it's a bit of a ridiculous question because like if you know the formula, you win. <laughs> but just from your standpoint, what I learned from Bob Newhart, very important. He never cared if he got the laugh. If you're writing a sitcom and every single person in the show shines, that's the goal you're going for. You get a lot of, uh, let's just say, selfish comedians that you work with time to time, and everything's got to be about them. That's a formula for disaster. So I would do that. But you also have to, even shows where the characters are despicable, you still got to like the character in some way. And with plays, you have to set up exposition. In, th in television, you don't have to do that at all. By the time the credits of the show end, everybody in the audience knows the show. 
So you can jump right in. You can think you don't have to set up anything for each character. It's already there. And for us, writing two-hour plays and then going to write 22 minutes of television, that was nothing for us. They would give us a script, and we would write it in two days, And even though they gave us two weeks to do it. And then we'd spend the rest of the time playing a horse outside at the basketball court and then pretend we were still writing. That's another great story in the book, folks, that you'll read about having to do with the, the production of the Lucy special, which is, which is just wonderful. And as you're talking about difficulties on the set. In my short-lived career, when I was a PA in LA in the 80s, I worked on a, a Love Boat special. Not exactly. I guess you could call it a sitcom drama. I don't, I don't know what it was, but Robert Wagner was the guest star. And I had been around a lot of celebrities working for Larry King, and, and 80% of them were just wonderful. And then you find somebody, and I don't know if other people found this in Hollywood, and I can only speak to my one experience with Robert Wagner, who just bullied everybody on the set, could not possibly get his scenes done. Maybe the guy was having a bad day. I always throw that out because you, you just never know when people get mad at athletes. Oh, my, he didn't sign the, my, the card for my kid, so he's terrible. These are real people. They got, they got real lives. But I just remember that particular moment in time, just seeing that. And I got to know uh, Gavin McLeod very well from that experience and, and actually – Years later, my wife, who's a writer at Time Magazine, was working at a travel magazine, and they were doing love boat cruises. And he, of course, was the big draw. And I hadn't seen him in a number of years and hung out with him. And what a, what a, what a great guy. Just that's like the exact opposite of, of what I noticed with Robert Wagner. But you talked about writing for all these comedians, and you talked about Martin Lawrence and, and that experience. And Rickles, give us a little bit of color of working with Don on on his sitcom. The greatest guy I ever worked with. I, I loved this guy so much. He was the sweetest man there is. Our audiences, during the week when you rehearse, you, empty, you rehearse on an empty soundstage, our bleachers were packed because people from all over the studio would sneak in to watch him work and hope he was going to insult them. Right. Any room he walked into, and I had that when I worked for Larry and, and at an event with Larry a couple of years ago that he came to, sadly, before he passed away. I mean, he just, just changes everything and absolutely one of the funniest guys, who I understand Mel Brooks is also that way, too. John was just a sweet guy. You'd sit, you'd we'd have dinner with him, and he'd you know he'd be like a regular human being. <laughs> and then a waiter would come over, and he'd go into his thing. And we, I remember one of the last dinners I had with him, we were leaving the restaurant, and Warren Beatty and Gary Shandling were coming in. And he stopped in the hallway and just tore them apart for about 20 minutes, making fun of Warren Beatty, the size of Warren Beatty's head. And he had a head like a light bulb. And, <laughs> and, and we were crying. And then we walked outside and very timidly, Don just turned to us and goes, did I do okay? <laughs> yeah, He was always on. In fact, when you're on the set of Daddy Dearest, somehow you got... Sinatra to be a guest star. Could you tell a little bit about that experience? Because honestly, I love what Rickles said, but I'll let you lead up to it. Sinatra, Don used to open for him a lot. One day, because we wanted, as soon as we started the show, it was like, can we get Sinatra? Can we get Sinatra? And we never wanted to ask. But one day Don volunteered. And, and so he, he called Frank and then he said to us, uh, Frank said he'll do the show, but it's only if he feels like it when he wakes up on a day that he feels like it. I was like, okay. We wrote a little part for him 
and we kept the set. It was a, a Vegas or Atlantic City show, I think. So we had a, a casino set set up. So we just left the set up. And every day we had extras on call and we had, uh, no matter what else was going on, we knew when we got the phone call that it was the day. So we get a phone call in the morning. He's awake and he feels like doing the show. He feels like doing the show. and Everybody's freaking out. And then we get another phone call. He's eating breakfast. He's eating breakfast. And then suddenly he, he's in the car. He's in the car. And he finally showed up. Whatever he wore that day was his costume. We didn't care. And we had his lines on cue cards. And uh, he walked onto the soundstage and just said, what do I do? And Don said, we're just going to stick a camera on you and just try not to drool all over yourself. <laughs> and that, but it was great. It was just great. And so that was, that was Frank Sinatra's last sitcom was for us. It was great. No, oh, that's terrific. I remember watching it because I, I don't think I missed an episode of the show and, and maybe the maybe it didn't have the hugest audience, but for people like me that appreciated anything with Don Rickles. The sad thing is our audience was big. It was just we were entering the world of politically correct and it got ugly real fast. <laughs> the right age to peak. I mean, you listen to that album now, and I actually listen with headphones so my kids don't hear it because I, I know I'll never hear the end of it. <laughs> but it was it was it was a funny guy. So kind of a few lightning round questions, and, and I also may have gotten a little help here with a couple of these. So tell me about five of your favorite Broadway songs. I understand you love Broadway, so you have some favorite musicals and songs. All right. What do I like? I like the uh, Springtime for Hitler from the producers. Right. I like One Day More from Les Mis. I believe from Book of Mormon. I always go for the I go for the funnier songs. Probably anything Merman sang is fine with me. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's true. So growing up, Big Brother with uh, listening to a lot of rock. I'm I'm sure you. Some rock music you really like, too. Like, if you were programming a half hour on Little Steven's Underground Garage, what songs would you throw on? I would keep it in the 60s. I would use a lot of Dusty Springfield. I would use uh, Roy Orbison. There's a song of his called Walk On that nobody seems to know, but I love it. And it, I don't know why it wasn't as big a hit as his other stuff. It has the same great orchestrations. So I would use him, throw in some Ronnie Spector. Who else? The Four Seasons. These two records, I remember as a little kid, Stephen played to death. Sherry from the Four Seasons played on a little turntable in our house, and Poison Ivy from the Coasters. I remember those two being played endlessly, but I, I am a great uh, Four Seasons fan. That's a, that's a lot of great music. That's a lot of great music. So as a comedy guy, did you ever think about writing drama, or maybe you're still thinking about that? We actually have a fantastic piece called New Amsterdam, which was about our relatives, the Van Zants, were have been in, in the country from the late 1500s in New York City. We wrote a, a, an hour drama piece about that that we just never sold it. There were too many. <laughs> at the time, we, we tried to sell it. We were told there were too many history shows on the air. I think it's one of the best pieces of writing we've ever done. Here's a question that, I mean, I really have to credit Tim Ferriss with this because he has this in his book, Tribe of Mentors. But I've adopted it and asked it every week because I think it's really kind of says a lot about who the person is and, and what matters to you. So uh -oh. let's say you're given a giant. That's all right. It's not that hard. <laughs> you're given it. There's no math involved. You're given a giant billboard. You can write any message you want to get out there. What would it be and why? I think I would simplify it and just say, be good to each other. 
my mother kept saying that to us when she was on her deathbed, basically. It was the last word she said to me, just to be good to each other. And I think that sums up everything <laughs> to me. I try to live my life that way. I hope our government works that way, too. Well, that's that's a beautiful thing. And it's interesting how when I have asked this question and that maybe not the same words, but the same tone or texture, what most people at the end of the day think about. And I think that's critical. Oh, and if I don't ask this question, I'll never hear the end of it. Your favorite Steve Van Zandt song. That's tough because I like an awful lot of them. The weird thing for me is that the music I grew up with is my brother's music, Bruce's music. It's a little bizarre that that's the music that defined my childhood, not my childhood, my teenage years and stuff. For Stephen, I I think I have to go right now with Soul Power Twist. I think that gets me in a good mood every time I hear it. I think it's a fantastic song. I love the video he did for it. And in concert, it's one of my favorites. And in that video, you see a 90-year-old woman dancing at the end, and that's my mom. I know, I know. In that video. Yeah. It's a great song. It's a great song. He's got a bunch of them that I like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's he'd go on forever with what he's got. So, Billy Van Zant, thank you so much for taking time today. And once again, folks, trust me on this. If you love TV like I do, you love comedies, and you know what? You really love that behind-the-scenes gossip that just doesn't exist anymore. And the stories that are in this book for a child of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and most people know these shows anyway because of syndication, you're just going to love the stories. So please... I'm not a book pusher, and it's funny. I don't think I've done this ever on any episode, but I've never read a book so quickly and just been like laughing the entire time. So the book is Get in the Car, Jane, Adventures in the TV Wasteland. If you order this book on Amazon and you are not laughing your, your butt off, let me know. I'll send you the money back. Don't don't even let Amazon. I'll send you the money back uh, because obviously you're not a funny person if you don't think this book is funny. And you said it. It's part textbook too, and which is really cool because there's a lot of lessons and every word of it's true. And if you're passionate about your work and you're frustrated with the obstacles you need to overcome just to do your job, this book is really perfect for you. And it makes a great gift. Father's Day happens to happens to be coming up. So there is no cooler family in the world than the Van Zants from Middletown, New Jersey. And what an honor today to speak with Billy Van Zant. Any other sites or places that folks can learn more about your work once we get back to theater? I mean, obviously, losing your partner is beyond words. And But were there some plans that were supposed to happen in 2020 that oh, God, yes. might get delayed a year? We've had, we have plays all over the world that got canned. I'm hoping live theater is a thing again so you know I can get my shows back up. The funny thing with this book is I wrote it for, you know, I thought it would be a great beach book, which I think it is, but I don't know if anybody's going to the beach now. <laughs> so, but anyway, but in terms of uh, what's coming next, we were touring around in our 25th play called The Boomer Boys Musical, which is a funny look at what men in their 50s and 60s go through when you reach that certain age. And we had bookings all all around the country, which all got canceled. So we'll be we'll be doing that again at some point, I hope. Well, I, I certainly look forward as someone of that certain age, at least until November, and then I move into the 60s. Yeah. Our website, people can follow that along, too. That'll have the bookings. It has all the TV shows. It has all the – that's uh, www.vanzantmilmore.com, M-I-L-M-O-R-E. So thank you.
No, of course. And we certainly will link with that. So, well, I know the time's getting late, but as I said, I am working from home. So that's it for this week's Financially Speaking. A shout out to the folks at Resonate Recording for all their brilliant production work. And remember, when saving up for your financial future, always pay yourself first. Have a great week. 